0: Before we get started, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you an opportunity to be in fellowship, to make sure you're rightly related to God the Holy Spirit for spiritual growth and understanding and taking in the Word of God. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we have the opportunity to come before your throne of grace. We are thankful for the information you give us in Scripture that teaches us about your love for us, your providential care, that you are the God who controls history and the God who oversees the details in our lives. And therefore, you are a God to whom we can bring our cares and concerns. And Father, we are especially grateful for receiving word on the safety of Ulan for the fact that he is out of the country and apparently out of danger. Father, we pray for him and his family that you will provide for them, that you will Uh, take care of them, that you will give them uh, contacts and people, safety, places to go, and that uh, it would be possible for him to continue to uh, keep in touch with us so that we can uh, follow uh, what is going on in his life and how you're working in his life. Father, we pray that you would give him a tremendous opportunity to witness for your word and to teach your word as a result of what he has gone through, we, pray, we thank you that he has stood fast. And we continue to pray for the other believers who were involved with his small church there in uh, Kyrgyzstan. We pray that you would uh, strengthen them, that there would be uh, uh, opportunity to reverse some of these governmental uh, issues, situations, instability, that there might be an opportunity for Ulan to return in safety and continue to nurture those young believers. Father, we thank you for the word, your word, that you have revealed to us, both in terms of the written word and the living word, our Lord Jesus Christ, and for all that he means to us, and for the wonderful things that you have revealed about him and his current work in our study of Hebrews. We pray that you would help us to understand these things, that we might have a greater understanding, perspective of what is going on today and what you are doing in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study in Hebrews chapter 1, and we will briefly review the first three verses. Hebrews 1.1, after God spoke in a variety of fragments and in various forms in time past to the fathers by means of the prophets. Hebrews 1.1 focuses on Old Testament revelation, which was partial and inferior to that which comes during the church age, These last days He has spoken to us by means of His Son, an arthris noun indicating quality, the superiority of the revelation through the incarnate second person of the Trinity, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the ages, the dispensations, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now that's all one sentence in the Greek, and we have to take it apart. And if you look at it grammatically, syntactically, The main verb is in verse 2. He has spoken, and the main clause is, he has spoken to us by his son. But there's a break that takes place in verse 2 after the uh, dative of son and everything else in the rest of verse 2 down through verse 4. Talks about the son. So as a that the two B, three and four are, are verses that are subordinate to the main verb, but they all deal with the same subject. So the subject shifts. The subject in one one to one two A is God speaking to us by His son. From two B through four, the focus is on the son, and the focus is on the quality of the son and what is. The, the Son is doing in His present ministry, His qualification for His present ministry, and what He is doing in the present session. As I pointed out when we began our study of Hebrews, is the focus of Hebrews, the main theme focuses on the present session of the Son and its significance for the believer in the present church age in terms of your experiential spiritual growth and your future destiny. So it's unpacking the significance of the session. And this is something that I find is, is too often limited in, in theologies or Bible teaching or an exploration of, of the book of Hebrews. People just focus on the priesthood of Christ which is fine, that, I mean, that's correct, but we, we have to pursue it. There's a few books that, have, uh, and some various uh, writers who have done some quality work in this area in recent years. For example, Joseph Dillow's book, Reign of the Servant Kings, and a few others really are pushing this, but there is so much more that we can uncover related to what is happening in terms of the present session. And it's been... Uh, like I say, in Calvinistic circumstantial luck, um, that this month I've been going down to uh, uh, Brenham and teaching on the Ascension and Session of Christ again, because that's just gotten me back into that whole doctrine, which I worked on, taught three or four times last year, and is really the foundation for understanding this. Now, we're not going to Go back through all of that because that's too lengthy a study. We'll get into it some in verse 4. But the more you think about what happens in, in Hebrews and how heavily the writer of Hebrews relies upon certain Old Testament passages in Psalm 110, especially Psalm 110.1 where uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And in Psalm 2, verse 8, the son is to wait until the Lord gives him the nations as his inheritance. And then we have Daniel chapter 7, which pictures the successive kingdoms that will dominate Gentile history from the Babylonian kingdom to the media persia kingdom to the Greek empire to the Roman empire – And even today, what what we see in 2,000 years of church history is really a fragmentation of the old Roman Empire and its attempts to pull it all back together again in terms of Western civilization. And this ultimately gets recovered in the tribulation period under the revived Roman Empire. And it's during this age that the sun is waiting the focus of the session isn't simply that he has finished his work on the cross and thus he can sit down at the right hand of the Father. That is what I read from uh, one theologian in just the last day or two. It goes beyond that. In his, seat, in his session, he is not simply seated in completion of his first Advent work, but he is waiting For the Father to accomplish certain things in human history, both in terms of, one, preparing the bride for Christ, and two, preparing the nations for that ultimate defeat when he makes the nations an inheritance for the Lord. And that is the background that we see in these opening verses of Hebrews. There's the reference in verse 2 that Christ is appointed... Heir, the Son is appointed heir of all things. And that inheritance that the Son receives is the kingdom that He acquires as His possession on the earth when He returns at the second coming. Now, somebody asked me an interesting question the other day when I was in uh, up in Brenham. And they apparently had not paid enough attention uh, at times in Bible class and uh, i 'm not being critical it 's easy to miss the point. I think a lot of people have missed this particular point, and that is that the hypostatic union is a permanent present and future status for the Lord Jesus Christ. It began at the Incarnation, but he doesn 't ever ever stop being true humanity he, and that This is related to the fact that that uh, when he returns at the second advent to uh, take ownership of the inheritance and to rule the nations with the rod of iron, according to uh, Revelation chapter uh, two, uh, verse seven, related back to Psalm, uh, excuse me, Psalm two seven, and also referenced in Revelation chapter two. He comes to rule with the reign of iron. That um, that he comes as the son of man, not as the son of God. The term son of man clearly designates humanity. When he comes to reign, he comes to reign as the son of David. So he's still human to be the son of David, sitting on David's throne ruling uh, as part of David's family. And the prophecies in the Old Testament said this is forever that he guaranteed that someone from you, David, will sit on your throne and rule forever indicates that, that this isn't something that just extends through the millennial kingdom, but the millennial kingdom is simply the prelude to eternity. It's, it's sort of phase one to eternity, and even though at the end of the millennial kingdom there's a destruction of the present uh, heavens and the present earth, what happens is we have a new heavens and a new earth. The new Jerusalem is on the earth. It's illuminated by the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is ruling and reigning still through the church, who will continue to serve as kings and priests to God. So we see that this, that what's happening in our present life has eternal ramifications. What you're going to be in the millennial kingdom. And what you're going to do throughout eternity is directly related to the volitional decisions you make today in terms of living your spiritual life, in terms of your priorities. We're going to get into this in reference to the battle of the Christian life, which is often referenced as the metaphor of spiritual warfare in uh, in the Scripture. When we get into the next letter in uh, the uh, study of Revelation, The last letter of chapter 2 relates to the uh, church of Pergamum. And they're living in one of the most hostile environments in the ancient world. And they have compromised so that they have picked up a very modern approach to living called tolerance. And they have distorted the concept of tolerance into approval. And this is uh, the point of the criticism in that epistle. So we're going to start studying this on Sunday night. Now, just a little word of warning. We're going to make it through Pergamum, and then we're going to take a hiatus from our Revelation study. And I'm going to run, take us in the summer through about our 10 or 12-week Basic Doctrine series. I've, you know, for seven or eight years, people have said, when are you going to do a basic doctrine series? And it's finally come to the point when I can't avoid it anymore. We need to have a good basic doctrine series that people can hand out, can use in witnessing, can challenge new believers with. People today, young, young people, I mean, many of you have come out of a background where you've had a lot of strong teaching. But you are so exceptional. And you're, the fact, the very fact that you're here on a Thursday night, the study that you have and the, the preparation you've had just is far beyond what you get in 99.9% of the churches out there. And that, that is not a, necessarily a, a statement where we're trying to pump us up and pump everybody else down. I really hadn't given this a whole lot of thought until a couple of years ago. Buck Anderson and I were Having a cup of coffee one night after at the pre-trip rapture study group, and he is now the academic dean and designated uh, and, and the provost, which means he's designated to be the next president of the College of Biblical Studies here. And he has had an opportunity the last 10 years as that school has expanded from about 200 students to about 1,600 students and is now the largest four-year accredited Bible college in the nation. And... Uh, Buck was saying, you know, I work with all these, and I'm not being derogatory here, just reality, all these Baptists in Houston. I work with Baptist pastors from all across the spectrum. And he said, we knew more about the Bible at Dallas Seminary at the end of our first year than they know after 20 years of being in the pulpit. Because our training was better than anything else. And that's true. At the top of its game, Dallas Seminary was producing the highest qualified men in all of church history. I'm convinced of that. Sometimes we're so close to something we don't realize the quality we have until years later. But after years of being in the ministry, I realized that that 99.9% of the other pastors in this country out there don't even have a clue as to what kind of education was being provided at Dallas Seminary in terms of the intensification that we had. I mean, if you were to put it into a military analogy, you'd have to say the Dallas Seminary was cranking out like special forces troops. I mean, just the cream of the cream of the crop. And the sad thing is that that, as Buck commented that night, says, these guys can go out and build a church in a year and go from 50 people to 500 people, and nobody out of Dallas knows how to do that. But, we can, but they don't know what they're teaching. They don't know anything about the Bible. And, and uh, they, they, they don't even know how to work their way through an Old Testament survey. So it, 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 we have to recognize that what we have is far beyond what so many believers have. But the thing is, we're living in an era and in a culture of constant degradation of education. And we're in tremendous decline. And the, when, when many of us were growing up, we still lived in, a, in an environment, especially in the South, if you were in the Bible Belt, where there was at least a, a loose understanding of the Bible. I remember one time when I was a... Uh, When I was in junior high, the teacher was expressing uh, astonishment at the fact that she had told the Christmas story. And it it was related to something we had read in in something in class. It wasn't even, you know, it wasn't spiritual. It might have been one of those short stories. I think it was The Gift of the Magi. I forget the author now. Really doesn't have anything to do with the Bible. But she just mentioned Jesus. And there was a, a, a seventh grader in there who didn't even know who Jesus was, and she was just astonished. Well, my wife teaches third grade, and she's, you know, half the kids in there never heard of Jesus. You know, she runs into this all the time. Those of you who are out there in the public school, you realize that we live in a, in a civilization and a culture today that is biblically ignorant. They you to, Give most people the Bible and say, find Genesis or the Gospel of John or Revelation. They don't know what you're talking about. They just can't find it. They don't know what you're talking about. They don't know that these are individual books in the Bible. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't know Jesus from Joseph from Joshua. And so the tension that that I feel sometimes as a pastor is, on the one hand, we've got a good group here, a core group in this church that we're starting that have almost a a college-level education in Bible doctrine, and yet we've got a community to reach with the Word where most people out there can't even find the Gospels in the New Testament, they don't have a clue what any of the terminology is. Just basic biblical terminology like redemption or salvation. Salvation from what? The young people coming up have no have had no input whatsoever from any kind of spiritual biblical input whatsoever. They're just a blank slate as far as I go. They don't have Bad training. They just have no – or bad information. They just have no information. And so uh, we're, we're, we've got to do, do, – it's like having an old one-room schoolhouse where you've got a bunch of older 14- and 15-year-old kids that are at one level, and at the same time you've got to bring in a whole bunch of new uh, kindergartners and first graders, and you have to teach both levels at the same time. So we're going to go back and do a little – basic study and I would just suspect that there's going to be a few things that uh some of the old hands are going to discover new. One of the reason another reason I want to do it is a, a sort of an application and explanation of our doctrinal statement so that people can as they come and they want to join the church, become a member of the church, we can say, "Okay, this is what we believe. Here's a doctrinal statement. Uh read it, do you believe it?" But, you know, most folks don't know how to read a doctrinal statement. They look at it, and the basic attitude is, well, I don't see anything in there I find offensive. So, yeah, that's fine. And then next thing you know, there's some sort of issue that comes up in the congregation, and everybody gets all upset because one day they wake up and realize what a doctrinal statement means. And it's uh, so I'm going to go through the doctrinal statement as we go through this basic series and uh, and try to tie the whole thing into a little... More cultural relevancy so that it can be something we can, we can all use to, in witnessing, something we can use in, uh, with new believers, challenging them to a, an understanding that there's a higher level of teaching and spiritual nourishment than what they may be used to. Okay. Back to our study in verse three. Now, let's look at the context of these four verses. And to do that, we have to understand the structure. Structure in scriptural studies often tells us what the writer is emphasizing. And what we have in this structure is something called a chiasm. The Latin word was chiasmus. And this is simply a way of structuring your topic so that you emphasize certain things. Remember in the ancient world you don't have boldface type or italics or a lot of things that we use to bring out emphasis. So they did it all through grammar and through literary arrangement. And so a chiasmus is, the, the concept comes from the Greek letter, uh, some of you who may know that as the letter chi, uh, we're taught to pronounce it today the letter key but this is the what looks like an x and so what you usually have is let's say you have five, four, four uh, or let's say five points you have point a point b and then point c and then d or your fourth point is actually a mirror reflection of b so it's called b prime and then your fifth point mirrors your first point so that's called a prime And so it looks like one side of an X. And so that's called the chiasmus. Now, if you think about that side of an X as an arrow, what's it pointing to? It's pointing to the center, C. And that's what the author's emphasizing. It's whatever's in the center of that chiasmus construction. And so when we understand this, we find that the writers of Scripture use chiosmos uh, quite frequently. And we have that construction in Hebrews 1, 1 through 1-4. So the first point, A, the Son is contrasted with Old Testament prophets. This is found in verse 1 and 2a. Then the second point that's made, B in our outline, is the Son is presented as the Messianic heir. The Messianic heir. This is the idea that He is the appointed heir, going back to Psalm 2. And this is in one uh, chapter 1, verse 2b. The third point in the development here is the Son's creative work. Lost an S there. The Son's creative work. And this is in 1, verse 2c, through whom also he made the agents, the son's creative work. And then D, which is at the center of our chiasmos, is the son's threefold mediatorial relationship to God. Now, what do I mean by a mediatorial relationship with God? A mediator is a go-between. A mediator is the one who stands between two opposing parties. Stands between two opposing parties. And the the concept of a mediator relates to the concept of priesthood. And what's a major theme in the whole epistle of Hebrews? It's the high priestly work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is in the introduction to this epistle. This is setting us up for what is going to be covered in the main body of the epistle. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says that there is one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. It doesn't say there's a mediator and a mediatrix. Jesus and Mary. It says there is one man and one, medi- one God and one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. And so in the center of the introduction to Hebrews, there's the emphasis on this threefold mediatorial relationship to God. And what comprises this? First of all, He's the brightness of His glory. The brightness of His glory or the radiance of His glory, as I'll translate it, the express image of His person, and third, He is upholding all things by the word of His power. Those three things make up that threefold mediatorial relationship to God. Then we come to C prime. C prime mirrors the first C in one two C, the Son's redemptive work. The Son's redemptive work, and this is in one three C, which is the phrase when He had by Himself purged our sins, by Himself purged or purified our sins. This is the Son's redemptive work, one verse three C. Then B prime which mirrors the sun as messianic air, is 1-3-D. See, what you do when you break down a verse into two sections, you'll call it 3-A for the first half, 3-B for the second half. If you want to break it down into four sections when you have a, 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 a verse that is as loaded as this one, then you break it down into A, B, C, and D. So the Son is Messianic King. This reference is to He sits down at the right hand of Majesty on high. He's waiting to be given His uh, his Kingdom. He is decreed the Son but He doesn't have the Kingdom yet because the Kingdom's been postponed. That's 1, 3 D. And then finally, A prime. The Son is contrasted with the angels. This mirrors the first statement where the son was contrasted with the Old Testament prophets. Uh, Verse 4, this is one for having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So this is a structure, chiastic structure of the first four verses. And what's the centerpiece? The centerpiece is the son's threefold mediatorial relationship to God. And that really foreshadows the theme of the whole, the whole book is that this is going to, the the whole book is going to unpack for us the significance of Christ's role as mediator, as high priest, which is what he's doing right now at the session and why that's significant for our spiritual life. What's he doing? He's not just up there defending us. He's doing that. That's important. I'm not, I'm not diminishing that. He is at the right hand of the Father. He is our defender. He is, uh, he is praying for us. He is our high priest. There's many facets related to that. But there's something else that He's doing. And what that is, is He is preparing us for that future position to rule and reign with Him. In the millennial kingdom, he is preparing us to be that special body of administrators. You didn't know you were going to be a bureaucrat in the millennium, did you? We're going to come back and function as kings and priests to God, ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what this focuses on. And at the core of verse 3 is the why Jesus is so important. Why Jesus is so important and it flows out of His deity. One commentary, one commentator that I read made the statement that you have to have an agenda, a preconceived agenda to destroy the deity of Christ, not to understand that in these passages it's teaching the full, undiminished deity of Christ. What we see in these passages, especially verse 3, is that the that the vocabulary and the grammar fairly groans under the weight of the meaning of these words. I mean this is so heavy. The words, the way it's written, how it's structured in the Greek is just overpowering. This is one of the most profound statements in all literature. And if you read it in the Greek you can't you can't avoid the unmistakable teaching that Jesus Christ is fully God, He is undiminished deity, and He is the only qualified person in all of history to run the universe because of who He is. So now let's break down verse 3. We Break down verse 3. He, He who, being the brightness of His glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, beginning in the middle of verse 2, we get into a series of seven relative clauses. Seven relative clauses that are going to define Jesus Christ. Let's put verse 2 up there. In verse 2 it starts off, his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. It's an accusative relative. And then we have a through whom, and there we have an instrumental. But when we get into verse 3... It shifts to a nominative case for that relative, indicating that the subject is now Jesus Christ. And he's not the subject of the main verb, but he is now the subject. That's what we're talking about in verse 3 and verse 4, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So seven things are said about the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning at the in, in the middle of verse 2. The first thing that's said is that he's the appointed heir. This focuses on the future destiny. He is the appointed heir. The second thing that is emphasized is that Jesus Christ made the ages. He's the one who designed and upholds the dispensations. Uh, the Greek use the word cosmos to indicate the physical and material world. But as we noted at the end of verse 2, the, the passage here uses the word ion, which is the word for the temporal world. Which includes the physical universe, but it has a special emphasis on its organized progression through time. So what we're seeing here is the Lord Jesus Christ is the one through whom he made the ages is being pictured as the one who supervises the progression of history through the ages. He's the agent through whom God created, God the Father created the physical universe as the courtroom as the courtroom in which the dispensations are worked out as successive evidence in the angelic trial. That's the implication here, that, that it, it's like a courtroom scene or, or, or a... Th- are, um, it's up on stage in a theater, and something is being worked out progressively. If you want to use a theatrical analogy, you're, you're watching a play, and you're moving from one act to another act as you go through the until you finally come to the denouement. If you deal with it in a courtroom scene, you're seeing the gradual, progressive presentation of evidence from one uh, one dispensation to another, ultimately resulting in the final conviction and uh, of Satan and the vindication of God's righteousness. Now in verse three we get to the center of this whole development. Who that is Jesus, that is the sun in context, the sun being the brightness, Of His glory. Brightness is how the New King James translates it. I think the New American Standard translates it radiance uh, or flashing forth. Or you could combine it and have it say the radiant flashing forth of His glory. The radiant flashing forth of His glory. Now verse 3 also shifts in one other way. Not only does, and part of this is indicated by the fact that you have this shift in relative pronoun. I just love grammar. I mean, I hate studying it, but it really brings out stuff. What happens when, you, as soon as you get through here, and I, I, I was wrestling with this when I initially got into this passage, why is it that we have this accusative and dative relative pronoun back in, at the end of verse 2, and in verse 3 we shift to a nominative? And what happens structurally is we move from prose in verses 1 and 2. In the middle of this sentence, he shifts to poetry. Now, that's not normal, is it? You don't, but, but what's happening is, and I'm trying to put yourself in the mind of the writer, is that as his mind is focusing on what God is doing and who Jesus Christ is, he, in the midst of this, he composes a hymn to express the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it, it moves from just pure prose into a structure of a hymn. He, in essence, he breaks into song in the midst of the, this sentence because he is so overwhelmed with the significance of what Jesus Christ is doing, what God is doing through him in history. We see that there is a shift, and this picks up a hymn structure, because there's a shift in subject from God in verses 1 and 2 to the Son in verse 3. There's a shift in the relative pronoun from the accusative to the nominative. He brings in two vocabulary words that are known as hapoxlegomena. Here's a good word for you. I better write that on the overhead. If you... (coughs) You don't learn anything else. You'll learn some new words here. Hapax. In the singular, it's legomenon. The plural is legomena, like phenomena, right? one phenomenon, two phenomena. And this means that a word only occurs one time in the Bible, one time in the Bible. So this is not standard. Biblical vocabulary. As soon as you start seeing passage, a passage loaded with, with, well, we just use shorthand in seminary and just say, when you see a passage loaded with hapax, you know there's an, something is going on. So, the word brightness, which we'll look at in a minute, and the word express image are hapax legomena. They're only used one time in the New Testament. A fourth, the the writer at this stage starts using participles instead of uh, instead of finite verbs, and the participles are used without the article. Fifth, there's a rhythm of words and a parallelism of ideas, which is typical of songs, just like you see in the Psalms. And then there's also a structural similarity. To other hymns that are embedded and quoted in other New Testament epistles. So verse 3 is virtually a hymn. See, hymns are important. Hymns aren't just something you sing that somebody came up with years ago, a sort of tradition to tack on at the beginning of a service, but they are expressions of praise and theology to God. That's why if you look at Ephesians 5:19 which is still part of the same sentence structure as Ephesians 5.18. You know, Ephesians 5.18, be filled by means of the Spirit. And then it's followed by a series of participles in the next four or five verses, which express the characteristics of being filled by means of the Spirit. And the first that's expressed is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This isn't just something secondary that's just tacked on. It is part of the uh, spiritual life of the believer in being filled by means of God the Holy Spirit, is we sing praise to God. And this happens, Paul does it, Philippians chapter 2, the kenosis passage, is a hymn. I mean, he just breaks out into a hymnal structure when he's expressing this most profound doctrine in Philippians chapter 2, and it happens in a number of other places. So we have to recognize that this, is, this really indicates the, the, the fact that the writer at the time is just overwhelmed with the magnificence of the doctrine that he is expressing. So it begins with this relative pronoun, the masculine singular nominative relative pronoun, who which shows that we're now making, because in a nominative case, Jesus Christ now becomes the subject of the verse and verses 3 and verses 4. He is expressed as being, it's a present active participle, no noun, no article, and it emphasizes his present reality, his present ongoing reality. Who being, and it's not that He became the brightness of His glory, but He is at His very nature. This ties in with what we read in John chapter 1. We'll go to a couple of those verses in a few minutes. Who is, who being, Being the participle is stronger for that ongoing nature. Who being the brightness of His glory. Now there's a fun word, alpagasma. Apagosma. Apagosma. It means radiance or effulgence. The passive sense is a simple reflection, but the early church fathers always understood that this word had to be taken as an, in an active sense. He is the radiant flashing forth of the Father. The active meaning of the, of the noun has the idea of emitting brightness. And the meaning or the connotation here is that the Shekinah glory of God, that, that visible glory that we see in the presence of God in the Old Testament, radiated through Jesus Christ. Just as the sunbeams come from the sun, so Jesus Christ is uh, ex- expresses the very nature of God. See, the passive idea, which some translations use, which is simply reflection, is like the sun and the moon. The moon reflects the light of the sun, but the moon doesn't tell us anything about the sun. But if it's the radiation of the sun, the sunlight communicates everything about the sun. We can learn from studying the sun. So it's not a reflection, which would mean that the Son of God was less than God the Father, but he is the radiation, the expression, the outflow, the radiant uh, the radiant flashing forth of God's glory. The context, now let's go back and remember context. What are we talking about in, in this whole section? In 1, 1 through 4, what are we talking about? We have to go back to the main clause. God has now spoken through his Son. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about revelation, aren't we? We've said this again and again and again. The subject here is how God reveals himself through the Son. So the subject of verse 3, or the, the, the idea here, isn't talking about what went on in eternity past. The idea is that in terms of the Son being the revelation of the Father, he is the radiant flashing forth of the Father. That's how his revelatory work in the Incarnation is being expressed. When he became incarnate, he is expressing the glory of God through his very being. So the focus here is not on Christ in eternity past as being full deity. Of course, that's true. But it is on his communication of that at the incarnation. So this first phrase emphasizes that... Unity of the Son with the Father in His nature or essence as it, is exp- as it was expressed and continues to be expressed through the Incarnation. Now, this word apagazma, when it has that M-A ending in the Greek, emphasizes the content or the substance of the action. The content or the substance of the action. So it's emphasizing the content of that brightness, meaning a reference, which indicates a reference to the essence of God. And that is what the term glory relates to. That's the next phrase. It is the flashing forth of His glory. The flashing forth of His glory. And the word in the Greek is doxa. Doxa which means weight or glory, and it translates the Hebrew word kavod. And kavod had the basic meaning of weight, weightiness, something that's heavy. Back, you remember back in the 70s? Man, that's heavy. Well, that pretty much captures the idiom of kavod in the Hebrew. It's talking about God is heavy. This is weighty stuff. This is serious, significant uh, matter. Now, what's interesting is that the, the word doxa in the Old Testament, or excuse me, doxa in classical Greek really had, the, had a, a little more shallow idea. It, um, it related to something that was more of human opinion, something that was more transient. But when the translators of the Septuagint used that Greek word, To translate the Hebrew word kabod, it shifted its meaning from the vacillation of human conjecture to the certainty of objective reality grounded in the character and the integrity of God. So that doxa becomes a reference to the divine essence, whether visible or invisible. Now we tend to think of glory, especially when we think of the Shekinah, We tend to think of that in terms of its visible, visual manifestation. But the glory of God is often expressed in Scripture in non-physical, non-visual terms. That's why I say doxa refers to the divine essence, whether visible or invisible. This is part of the whole imagery that Jesus uh, expresses in John 8.12 when he says that he is the light Of the world. In John 1.14, the Word became flesh, the Word being Logos, a title for the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now what's interesting is if you study John 1.14, here you have the Apostle John. The Apostle John was one of three key disciples along with Peter and James and John went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus Christ suddenly was transformed from His humanity and he, 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 His glory was unveiled. And all of a sudden, the flashing forth of His glory is, is there. And, of course, Peter sticks his foot in his mouth and, and wants to... Wants to uh, he sees Elijah and Moses are with him, and he wants to construct this altar to worship them. And you know, Jesus just basically says, keep your mouth shut and relax, Peter. But that's the physical glory. But here John was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and John never talks about that. He never mentions the Mount of Transfiguration in the whole Gospel of John. When John talks about the glory of Jesus Christ as manifested in his gospel, he's talking about his character, the essence of God. He never mentions that physical, visible, flashing forth a a visible light. He's always talking about that invisible essence. And that's really the core idea of the glory of God is his essence, which is sometimes revealed in this luminescent glow. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, that's a reference to creation, Genesis 1, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just a little side note here. If Genesis 1 is allegory, and God didn't command the light to shine out of darkness, then what does that do to the second part of the verse, which talks about God shining in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, the second half of the verse is rendered irrelevant and meaningless if God didn't speak in Genesis 1-2 and say, Let there be light in the midst of the darkness. So you see, you can't allegorize Genesis 1 without destroying and eviscerating the gospel message of the New Testament. Now, here's a picture of the Shekinah as it's manifest in the temple. The term Shekinah glory, which we often refer to as a breakdown of two different words, Shekinah and glory. Shekinah comes from the Hebrew word shakan, which means to dwell. It means to dwell. In fact, it came over into Greek as the verb skene, or as a noun skene, which means to to, uh, to dwell or create a temporary dwelling. And that's the word that we have in, in John one fourteen that that the word became flesh and skenade among us, tabernacled among us. Uh, even to this word, skenied, is a Greek word that means to dwell. You have a cognate, it shows up in Russian. It's because of the influence of the Greek Orthodox Church. And all of it goes back to a Hebrew Origin in Shakan, meaning to dwell. The word glory means that which is heavy or weighty, and the Shekinah glory means that physical manifestation of the dwelling presence of God in the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. So that the word glory is the common biblical word used to describe the uh, theophany of God's presence on the earth passages such as leviticus 9 and moses and aaron went into the tent of meeting when they came out and blessed the people the glory of the lord appeared to all the people when they were in the holy of holies there was this light glow on the ark of the covenant that indicated the presence of god this was there up through the its departure right before the conquest of the southern kingdom in 586 when Ezekiel saw the departure of the Shekinah. Numbers 14.10 But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent meeting to all the sons of Israel. So they had this physical manifestation of God over and over and over again. And see, people today always say, you know, if we, if, if Christians would just trust God, we could have miracles today. There's a charismatic, uh, movement that's been quite popular the last, oh, 20 or 30 years called the Vineyard Movement or the Signs and Wonders Movement. And the basic idea was that if Christians would really trust God and ha- would have this restoration of miracles today, more people would believe. Oh, really? And that's what we saw with the Exodus generation, right? Of people who were moving forward in the Christian life, saw miracles, saw the presence of God, heard the voice of God, really made a difference in their spiritual life. What about during the time of Jesus? They saw all kinds of miracles. Really made an impact on those Pharisees, didn't it? So it's a matter of walking by faith and not by sight. Mark 9.3 references the uh, appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ the Mount of Transfiguration, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. This is the, that, that light flashing forth from his being, the physical manifestation. At the birth of Christ, uh, he is said to be a light bringing revelation to the Gentiles. And the glory of your people Israel. So this reinforces the physical manifestation of light and the glory of God. In John um, 17.5 we read, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself and with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And that indicates that there's a shift in the manifestation of His glory. During the incarnation, it's limited, it's veiled. That's part of the, what happened during the kenosis, was there is this, this, Jesus willingly limited the expression of his divine attributes. He didn't limit his divine attributes. He just limited the expression of them during the time of the incarnation to accomplish the purposes of the incarnation. John 2.11 gives us a different twist, which I alluded to a minute ago, on the glory of God, or the glory of Christ. John comments on Jesus turning the water into wine and says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory. Now that's a different kind of glory, isn't it? It's not the glory of Him flashing forth, it's the glory of His caring about people and their situation and meeting the needs at the moment, even though it really wasn't his time, as he uh, rebuked his mother for. Him. Matthew sixteen twenty-seven. The word "glory" is used in another sense, referring to the future kingdom. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward each according to His works. John twelve forty, forty-one. We have a different reference to His glory. With a quote from Isaiah chapter 6, we're told that He had blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts. These things, verse 41, Isaiah said because he saw His glory. John or 12.41 says that Isaiah saw Jesus Christ's glory. Now, when did he do that? Was Isaiah still alive when Jesus showed up? Isaiah lived in the 7th century B.C., When did Isaiah see the glory of Jesus Christ? In Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3 and following, when he has has this this, uh, vision of the heavenly courtroom and the, 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 the the seraphim are singing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. That's when he saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the importance of this, in terms of verse 3, can't be stressed enough. Because what this is teaching is that Jesus Christ is the full essence of God. He is the expression of the full essence of God. That uh, John, in John chapter 1, we read that no man has seen the Father at any time, the uh, only begotten has explained him he is the one who reveals him and this is what was understood by the church fathers when they met at that famous council of Nicaea in 325 when they were wrangling about how to express the relationship of the son to the father before the incarnation and that was the first big question they had to address in the early church, was what was Jesus before He came? Now, they had the New Testament. They knew He was God. They're not making up new doctrine. What they're trying to do is figure out how to properly articulate what the Word of God says. If Jesus pre-existed and He's eternal God, do you have two gods? How do you, How do you articulate this? See, we understand the Trinity. We have vocabulary for the Trinity that came out of Nicaea. But if you lived before Nicaea, it wouldn't be that simple because they hadn't developed the vocabulary and the definitions. So the main main uh, figure was the Athanasius, who was the bishop of Alexandria, and he comments in his encyclical epistle to the bishops of Egypt and Libya in 8356, quote, who does not see that the brightness—that's this brightness we have mentioned in Hebrews one three—cannot be separated from the light? See that the, the sun's brightness is one with the light. You can't separate them in two different persons. This was this was what he was driving for in that battle to defend the deity of Christ. The the brightness cannot be separated from the light, but that it is by nature proper to it and coexistent with it, and is not produced. After it, in other words, it's coexistent and co-eternal. the son must be full equal deity with the Father. This is what he was emphasizing. Ambrose, another church father, uh, a little later in the century, who was also a teacher of Augustine later on, wrote in his work De Fide that is translated on, or on the faith or on faith, wrote, quote, "Think not that there was ever a moment of time." When God was without wisdom, any more than that there was ever a time when light was without radiance. See, he's using the same imagery. The flashing forth of that light from the sun can't be separated from the sun itself. To have the sun means you have the radiation. To have the the radiant light means you have the sun. They can't be separated from one another. For where there is light, there is radiance, and where there is radiance, there is also light. And thus we cannot have a light without radiance, nor radiance without light, because both the light is in the radiance and the radiance in the light. Thus the Apostle has taught us to call the Son the radiance of the Father's glory, for the Son is the radiance of his Father's light, co-eternal because of the eternity of power, inseparable by unity of brightness." That's why Nicaea, when they formulated the Nicene Convention, they said Jesus Christ is light from light. That's where this terminology comes from. They're not just making stuff up. So we've made it through the first phrase. He is the radiant flashing forth of His glory. Next time we'll make it through the next phrase and hopefully a little further to understand what it means that He's the express image of His person. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, Father, thank you for this time to study Your Word, to become acquainted just a little bit with with the uh, eternal deity of our Lord Jesus Christ and how it was expressed in the incarnation, and that because of that He is now He has now completed our salvation, is seated at Your right hand, and He is working in and through the church to produce in us a team to rule and reign with him in the future kingdom. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these truths. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.